Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love, for your mercy, for your watch care, for your um, vision over the events that are transpiring in this world and that all things are working together for good for those that love you and you have called to your purpose. We ask that we will stay right in the main lane of what you're doing here at this time in earth's history, that we can be empowered by your spirit to be bright lights in this world and that you will carry out your purposes in our lives. Give us wisdom as we study today. Uh, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Our lesson today is lesson... 10 in the quarterly three cosmic messages and it's titled Satan's final deceptions and before we get into the uh, final deceptions I wanted to follow up from something that was said in last week's class there was a question raised if you remember and it was a good question I'm glad it was raised about whether the uh, Adventist church actually teaches this idea that uh, uh, this I- idea that that God's law works like Roman law and that God, therefore, is required by law to use his power to punish sinners and ultimately as the sinner substitute to punish Christ. And, and is this really true that the Adventist church has been infected with this idea? Uh, that question was raised, and, and I didn't have on the top of my head just uh, uh, the evidence for that to give. And so we don't want to just make assertions or claims. We want to document our our positions with evidence. So I'm going to go through some quotations here this morning just to show you uh, that my concerns about this idea coming into Adventism and understand, as I said last week in class, I believe that there is a true Adventist message that was given to the church to represent God as creator and his laws as design laws that were to free the Christian world, not just the Adventist people, the Christian world, from this imperial Roman view of God as a, as a dictator and punisher. And, and that that message is not the same message that is commonly represented in our church today. So here are some quotes from various Adventist sources published officially by Adventist Publishing. First is out of the Seventh-day Adventist Believe book, page 27, page 111, and it says, "...for a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness..." The atoning death of Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. Wow. So, so God is executing Jesus in this idea. Um, say, uh, in the um, Ministry Magazine, which is a magazine published by our church to go to ministers across the, the nation, it says, Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or a sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or lethal injection? Wow. This is, again, Adventist official publication. Or this is out of the Adventist World Review. One of the fundamental problems with the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, the idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. They're making the argument that justice requires God killed Jesus as our substitute. This is out of one of the adult Sabbath school Bible study guides in 2011. Does the Hebrew word in both Leviticus 9.14 and 10.2 is the same? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the first case, the offering. In the other, the sinners. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation. God, excuse me, at the cross, the fire from God, the wrath of God consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. That's awful. And, and this is out of this quarter, earlier this quarter, Pacific Press, and this is out of 2023. The fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on Jesus at Calvary, and all who are in Christ are safe forever beneath his wings. At the cross, Christ was judged 
and as a condemned sinner so that we could be judged as righteous citizens of heavenly kingdom. He was judged as a criminal so that we could be set free from the destructive fires of eternal loss, both figuratively and, yes, literally as well. Literally as well. Literal fire from God. Is this uh, Clifford Goldstein? Yeah. He's the editor, so that's why you put his name down. Yes, Clifford Goldstein, the editor of the of the um, of the Sabbath school guide. So, according to all these different quotes from all these different sources across the landscape of Adventist publication in the modern times, who would they say is the source of death upon Jesus, our substitute? God. What does the actual Bible say? Here is Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He took up our sin condition, our sickness. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The Bible prophesies that Jesus came to take the terminal sin condition upon himself in order to cure the condition... But humans would misunderstand and allege it was God striking him down. Mm. Do you see that prophecy fulfilled in what I just read? Mm. Or Jesus himself spoke in John 8, 44. Jesus speaking to those who would later crucify him said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says death comes from who? And so this is now a quotation from the book, The Desire of Ages, which will give us a historical reference documenting what the original position of the Adventist church was and what we were supposed to be taking to the world and what should be showing up in our publications. This is what Ellen White wrote. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. So according to Ellen White and Isaiah and Jesus, who is the source of death that acted with power to end the life of Jesus? Who is our church saying did it? God. Get your mind around that. We're infected with Romanism. It's, pa- it's pagan, it's papal. But let's not stop with Ellen White. Here's another historical quote. This is George Fifield, and this is from a sermon he gave at the General Conference in 1897, the SDA uh, General Conference of 1897. And this is what he wrote. We said God is doing this. God is killing him, punishing him to satisfy his wrath in order to let us off. This is the pagan conception of wrath. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. The Christian idea of sacrifice is this, and let us note the contrast. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the Christian idea. Yes, sir, indifference keeps, hatred keeps, selfishness keeps. But love, and love only sacrifices, gives freely, gives itself, gives without counting the cost, gives because it is love. That is sacrifice, whether it is the sacrifice of bulls and goats or of him who is the Lamb of God. It is the sacrifice that is revealed throughout the entire Bible. But the pagan idea of sacrifice is just the opposite. It is that some God is always offended, always angry, and his wrath must be propitiated in some way. Should we show this to them? <laughs> it has been presented. Wow. So it looks like in the beginning of our church, they believed yes. this. Yeah. And they've gotten away from it. Uh, this was in 1897. Right. So in, in, if you look at the progression of our church, the message that was given to our church, particularly through Ellen White, was, was this idea that God is the creator and his laws are design laws. I read several beautiful quotes last week, if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that the Roman idea of law is imperial and that God must use power to inflict punishment. Uh, the message of righteousness by faith that was being advanced came to our church in 1888, which supports everything we're teaching. At 1888, Ellen White says the devil won a great victory. And the Holy Spirit was rejected 
And had they accepted this message that we're teaching, the Holy Spirit would have come with power upon the Adventist membership and the world would have been lightened for the second coming. Wow. But Satan succeeded in putting the, this message away and replacing it with imperial law. Understand, the question, the big question of the 1888 conference was the law in Galatians. Jones and Wagner, who present what we're presenting, took the position that when Paul says the law was added, he meant all the written law, the ceremonial laws, as well as the moral law of the Ten Commandments were added because of sin. G.I. Butler, the president of the conference, and his followers, which is the predominant, said, oh no, the added law was the ceremonial law. The, the Ten Commandments were eternal and not added, and they function like a list of rules that require punishment. This was the big difference. The church rejected the 1888 message from Jones and Wagner and went down the role of imperial law, and then the church doubled down on that in the early 1900s, and they doubled down on it again in the question, book Question on Doctrines. The book Question on Doctrines was a book that was specifically designed to deal with evangelical criticism that Adventists were a cult because of the sanctuary message, and the sanctuary message says that Jesus at the cross, the, the tr- traditional sanctuary message of Adventism, rightly understood, not penal legally understood, is that Jesus became the second Adam, took upon himself all the liabilities that sin had done to the species, and as the second Adam confronted, overcame, and eradicated the carnal infection and restored God's perfect righteousness in the species human, his own humanity, and thus became the second head of humanity, the, the branch, excuse me, the vine, and we are the branches grafted in, and through our faith we receive all that Christ has, uh, re- has produced, is reproduced in us, Hebrews 5 8 and 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. He developed a perfect, mature, Christ-like character and destroyed that part of us that tempts us to act selfishly. And he was tempted in the same way as us at Gethsemane when he experienced those powerful human emotions to act in ways to leave and save himself. But he rejected those and chose love and sacrificed himself freely. No one can take my life. I give it freely. Thus he lived out as a human, God's law perfectly, becoming the second Adam, the the sinless human being. Okay, that's all design law. All objective recreation of God's perfection in the species human. Okay, all of that uh, was, was the message. That was all rejected. Uh, and, and so the sanctuary message is Jesus secured the remedy. And then he goes to heaven to direct all the agencies at the disposal of the divine Godhead. That's angelic, as well he said to his apostles, it's expedient for you that I go. If I don't go, the Spirit won't come. But I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Spirit. And he's, gonna, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. And he's going to take what's mine and he's going to make it known to you. Remember this from Scripture? Yeah. Okay. So Jesus won the victory as a new, sinless, perfect, human, righteous character. He's going to go to heaven. He's going to direct all the agencies for the purpose of bringing this truth and... For those who trust, the Holy Spirit brings new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He takes the victory of Christ, reproduces it in us. We get new hearts and right spirits, right law in our hearts and minds. This is all the work being directed by Christ in heaven. That's his sanctuary mission, cleansing his temple or his people. Okay? We describe this more in the, in the wedding magazine, the wedding of Christ and his bride, cleansing his bride and preparing his bride to be united in perfect holiness with him. Okay? That is the message that's supposed to go. That message got rejected and replaced with a penal legal idea. He is not working to actually cleanse you and me. Sins are legal problems done by, by people, they're behavioral, and they get recorded in legal registries in a book in heaven. And in heaven, those legal registries get open. And if you claim the blood, then the legal application of the blood goes into a record book and erases the record of the sin. And in some court tribunal in heaven, you get declared to be righteous even though you're not righteous. And that's what our church has been teaching since 1888, the legal legal payment. God had to have the proper payment of the sinless blood in order for him to be able to legally pardon your sin debt. That's the most blatant thing I've ever seen that you've taught so far. False teaching that our church has taught us. And that is exactly, and the, and the, the reason it's taught that way is taught that way because all of the rest of evangelical Christianity teaches that at the cross, 
that the atonement was a complete atonement, all sins, past, present, and future, placed on Christ at the cross, and salvation for all human members were achieved there. You just accept it, and then you are saved. Once you've accepted it, you're saved, so no future sin will ever remain against you to be punished or paid because all debts were paid. Now, Martin Luther came up with this theory, the penal substitution theology, and he came up with this theory because he wanted to destroy this idea of purgatory. The purgatory idea is this that if you die with certain sins that you hadn't confessed, even though you've had faith in Jesus and were in good standing in the church, those sins had not yet been purged or cleansed from your being. So, But because you're in grace, you don't go to hell. You go to purgatories where your soul goes, where those remaining sins get purged or cleansed from you, and then you can go into heaven. And if you have a loved one like that, you can accelerate their purging time by giving donations to the church. It will help cleanse them faster. Luther wanted to destroy this idea, so he came up with the idea of penal substitution theology, that all sins are legal problems, and Jesus, as our legal substitute, had all sins of all people for all time, past, present, and future, placed on him and fully punished at the cross so that if you accept Jesus, not only your past sins, but your future sins have already been punished in Jesus, so there are no one remaining sins left to be purged in purgatory. So there's no such thing as purgatory. <laughs> this is what his goal was with the theology. Okay? The Adventist church recognizes that the human species was saved in the person of of Jesus Christ who became fully human, took upon himself all the liabilities that, that humanity suffered under because of Adam's sin, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And in Jesus Christ, humanity, the species, is perfected to sinlessness and elevated not only back to its position Adam had, but higher because now humanity sits on the throne of the whole universe in the person of Jesus who runs the whole universe. So humanity sits at a higher position because of Jesus. And even if no other individual human were saved, the species human was saved in Jesus. So Jesus saved the race. And what he did simultaneously is he procured the cure or the remedy that is effective in saving any other individual human who in faith or trust open their heart to him. They receive from the Spirit his victory and get a new heart and right spirit. And the law is written in their heart and mind or they have circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit or the old sinful heart is taken away and a new tender heart is put in or they're reborn or they're recreated or they're transformed and all the metaphors of Scripture describe the recreating, healing, and restoring of sinners back into righteousness with Christ. It is a reality-based Christianity that actually takes broken and sick-hearted people who live in fear and selfishness and perfects them into godliness so that when Christ comes, we see him face to face because we shall be like him. Okay, this is the reality. This was rejected by the Adventist church in 1888 and embraced the imperial pagan law model and all of these beautiful truths were reset in a fraudulent legal system that gives a form of godliness but no power and keeps people living in fear and loyalty to the system because they're afraid if they're out of the system that they identify as the remnant because the remnant have the red leather books and the right day of the week, then they can't be saved because salvation is not in being recreated by Jesus living in your heart. It's by actually being identified with the right organization. Mm. (laughs) Have I overstated anything? (laughs) 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 And I would challenge if there are some Adventist leaders disagreeing with me, I'm open. Let's have a public discussion. Show me where what I've said is factually and biblically wrong. They won't do it. They won't do it. Because they can't. Because they can't. So I've shown you the quotes about, and the idea here, we got off a little on the side trail with the question, but the idea that I presented here this morning is that the Adventist church 
I still believe as a people was called by God for a mission to take an end time message of the truth of our creator God and his design laws to the world to free hearts and minds from an imperial dictator view of God, regardless of denomination. It's not a denominational issue. Okay? Just like the Jewish nation was called by God, in their case, for two primary purposes. One, to be the physical avenue through which the Messiah would be born, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed of the woman is coming. So to be that physical avenue, but also to be the avenue of the revealed truths through the prophets and the Bible writings that would teach this plan of salvation. Because they were the containing vessel of not just the people who would Jesus would be born through, but the truths and the systems that taught these larger realities, Satan particularly targeted their system to reprocess it all through pagan-imposed law concepts of a punishing God who required payments. And so, I read the Fifield quote. I will skip ahead and read this quote from Ellen White, which is what Linda referenced last week in class. This is the quote. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 685, regarding the, the, the teaching. While God has desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to himself. In other words, heals, restores, brings us back into unity and oneness with him. The arch enemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as one who delights in their destruction. Thus the sacrifices and ordinances designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. This is what we were supposed to teach. The sacrifice of Christ was designed to reconcile us to God, to win us to trust, and in trust, restore godliness within us so that we are like him in heart, mind, motive, method, character. But instead, what is taught in the church is God is wrathful. God is angry. He's been offended. His law is a barrier. He can't allow us in his presence and maintain his law unless someone pays a legal penalty. And only an innocent can pay the penalty because if you paid it, well, you deserve the penalty. So you can't pay the penalty. And so Jesus came to live a sinless life and die and then go to heaven and offer his sinless blood to his father to propitiate the father's wrath so the father can legally pardon us. This author, the original Advent message was, that's paganism. That's Baal worship, as I described last week. This is why the Adventist church has not fulfilled its mission to lighten the world, because they're taking the right Sabbath to the world with the wrong pagan god in charge of that Sabbath. How do we get so far off? Very straightforward. I've said it over here. If you, you answer that question, it goes back to what's, what's that quote from Ellen White? The, the, the controversy will end over the same thing it began with in heaven, which is a question over God's law. Character. Over God's law. The final message of mercy is the truth about his character of love, but his law is a transcript of his character of love. So they're all connected, but the question of law was the allegation of Lucifer. God makes up laws. We don't have freedom because he makes up rules and punishes us for rule-breaking. Tim, that just takes away the hope of the Christian for healing and transformation the way they're believing. It takes away that hope that I'm going to be healed, I'm going to be transformed. So they would deny that. They would say that's called sanctification. We all believe in sanctification. But the justification is legal. And you can't be sanctified unless you're legally justified. And justification is when, when God declares you to be righteous, even though you're not righteous, and you walk with him for sanctification and growth and maturity. So they would deny that, but they split the two. And, and, and yet, if you push them on it, are you saying, so in your model, does that mean we actually become holy or we only become less sinful? In other words, um, you know, my porn problem that I used to do every day as I'm sanctified, I only do it once every three years. Yeah. <laughs> you're not healed from the inside. It still becomes very behavioral. 
wonder they, they're going to say, Lord, we did all this stuff for you. And he's going to say, I don't know you. That's correct. That's correct. So with all that in mind, I, I picked that up because the question came up last week. The Adventist church really doesn't teach that. It's not in the Adventist church. Have I made the case based on evidence that yes. this idea of Roman law is yes. deeply infected into the Adventist church as well as every other Christian church? Yes. Okay? Uh-huh. And, and it's infected not as an evidence that the Adventist church is not called of God any more than the Jewish nation was called of God. But because it's called of God, Satan works extra hard to get these ideas into the systems called by God to, to undermine their effectiveness. There's one thing that, that's kind of remarkable about how the human mind seems to work. Once we have found a way to connect to an institution, it seems like there is nothing that we won't do or say or rationalize to protect that institution. And I think that's what's happened with the leadership of the Adventist Church. I think that's what happened with the Durham report regarding the, the government uh, justice system. And with all these findings that they had, their primary focus was to protect the system. And that's because you're exactly right. They, they shift their priorities. It is, I remember in scripture, a leader named Caiaphas said, it is better for one man to die than the nation. We must protect the institution. It is better for our employees to be coerced than to lose our Medicare payments. It's true. That was the decision. We have a responsibility. You could hear the same argument, potentially. Didn't happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura, bow or don't bow. And they're having the conversation. Well, what's wrong to bow? We can't bow. Yes, but God's put us in a position of leadership. Think of all the Jewish folks we're able to protect because we have administrative protection. If we're removed and the pagans get there, many more people are going to be hurt. We have a responsibility before God not to be removed from our position. So I know that when the music plays, we should tie our shoe because man looks on the outward appearance and they might think we're bowing, but the Lord looks on the heart and he knows we aren't bowing. And that way we can keep our organizational position to be able to protect many good people. That's too true for us to... I mean, when you say something like that, people are like, you're way off base, Tina. What you just said, tie our shoe. Our church does things like that. I know. This is, this is what happens. Uh, that, that, oh no, God looks on the heart. He knows we're not bowing. He knows we're only tying our shoe. I can't help it that they think we're bowing because man looks on the outward appearance. Lord looks on the heart. And, and, and this is a, a very reasonable decision for us to compromise on because we have a position of leadership God's put us in. And we're protecting so many of our fellow Jews from abuse by these people. We have a place to hold. This is exactly what people in administrative organizations will often be faced with these types of questions. Rather than stepping back and saying, wait a minute, what is the truth and what is right? Mm-hmm. Second paragraph of Sabbath's lesson. As we have seen, and <laughs> it's interesting, right after what we just went through, as we have seen, Revelation warns that the inhabitants of the earth will drink a deadly potion called the wine of Babylon. There are false doctrines and teachings that, in the end, will lead only to death. However, the world is not left without an antidote, the protection against the spiritual poison, the three angels' message. Have we seen the poison infect those who claim to give the three angels' message? Now, which is more dangerous to you? Going into your medicine cabinet and having a bottle, skull and crossbones, poison, do not drink, Drano. <laughs> or going to your medicine cabinet, antibiotic will save you in ca- infection filled with Drano. <laughs> yeah. Which is more dangerous? So which is actually more dangerous here? This idea that our three angels' messages are going to save the people as we present a punishing God who, if you don't obey the right rule, will use his power to torture you as long as you deserve before he kills you. So get the right rule. No question the saved will, em- will embrace the truth. There's no question the saved will embrace the truth. And the lost will reject the truth, believe various falsehoods. But is this idea of truth and falsehood speaking about facts or something else? What I call functional truth. For instance, can someone be saved? In heaven, 
if they genuinely believe when Jesus comes that prior to his arrival, they genuinely believe the earth was flat. <laughs> but they believe God is love, and they believe Jesus died for them, and they have accepted him as their Savior, and they live a, a, a righteous and Christ-like character in how they treat others, but they believe the earth is flat. Well, the fact that they believe wrong about the earth keep them from being saved. Oh. But is it a benign belief? Because we're also warned by Ellen White that in the end, there will be people who take radical positions on things that will then be seen to be stupid. And then that pervades the idea that anyone else of this belief must all their beliefs must be stupid if they believe in the flat earth, for example. Yeah, so you're expanding it beyond that individual to the impact that it has on others. And so we're really just talking about can a person who holds a false belief still be saved? Hmm. Uh, let me put it this way. When Jesus comes and the saved are lifting into the air, meet their loved ones, rising from the grave, do you believe there's any single person of the saved who know every text of the Bible completely correct? So that means we all have errors to believe. So so the point is, we're not actually saved by having correct cognitive knowledge in all points. That's not the truth that saves us. Wow. The truth that saves us is a functional truth. Is that what uh, Paul was talking about in Romans? When he he explained how uh, non-Christians or people who have never heard the gospel, how they become a law unto themselves... So it's Romans chapter 2, verse 12, those who have not heard the law, it's Torah, scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law are law unto themselves, showing that law has been written upon their heart. Right. What's the new covenant experience? I'll write my law on your heart. So he's saying those who haven't heard the scripture truths, but have understood through nature, because he said in Romans 1.20, right before he wrote Romans 2.12, because there's no chapter division verses when he's writing, he says that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. So if the truths of God's kingdom and how reality works as God made it are accepted and applied into the heart, then those people have been set right with God. That's exactly what he's saying. And many of those people are going to have misunderstanding or false beliefs Maybe, maybe some of them would even believe in reincarnation, and they're going to be surprised that they're not going to be. <laughs> yeah. No, you're exactly right. So what are the truths that, that are necessary? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they might no. know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ all sent. That doesn't mean they know the name Jesus. It means they know God. And if that God was in 1543 in the plains of North America and some uh, uh, Cherokee person who called him the Great Spirit, but had all the attributes of Jesus and practiced the self-sacrificial love and how they treated others, that person knows the true God. Even if it hasn't had the, and that person still being saved by Jesus. And Zechariah gives evidence of that when he says that, describing the, the, the new heaven and earth, they will come to me and say, where did you get these wounds in your hands and your feet and your side? And he will say, I received them at the house of my friends. Mm, wow. okay, the implication is the saved, there will be people saved. Now, when you get to heaven, will you actually go to Jesus and say, where did those wounds you have come from? No. You're not going to ask that question because you already know the answer. So what's the implication if somebody is saved asks the question? They don't know the Bible story yet. Okay, so the Bible makes a good case that there will be people who have accepted the truth of God's character, Romans 1.20, Romans 2.12, Zechariah, and other places, uh, but they all actually know God in character, method, and principle. That's what they know. They know the truth, the functional truth of how God's kingdom works. And then, of course, my, one of my favorite texts, 2 Corinthians 10, we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapon we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against knowledge, knowledge of God. This is the truth, the knowledge of God. That This is the truth you have to know. You have to have some knowledge. And this is not head knowledge. Get your mind around this as well. If you were to... Talk to the devil and say, do you believe God is the creator? Satan would say, do you believe God is powerful? Do you believe God created in six literal days and rested on the seventh? Do you believe that that Jesus is coming again soon? 
it says he's, he believes his time is short, and he goes with like a roaring lion, doesn't it say that? Yeah. Yeah. So he's an Adventist. <laughs> Isn't that right? He's a Bible-believing Adventist. He doesn't pay tithe. But he doesn't pay tithe. Okay. So, he, so he's, he's not in good standing. <laughs> the point is you can believe facts, right? Who do you think believes more confidently in the reality of Jesus being God? All the demons say that as they're being cast out, I know who you are. Son of the Most High God. Yes, they, they don't have doubt. They don't have doubt. No, okay. Then, then knowing those facts about God are not saving facts. That's not the saving knowledge. Get your mind around that. And Jesus himself said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out many demons and perform miracles? Yet ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never you. got your social security number registered in my books. <laughs> no, this knowing is that he knows their names. He knows their DNA profile. He knows every head on their ha- hair on their head, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't have intimacy. They weren't friends. They weren't known. Remember Paul says, now we see in part, then we'll see fully, even as, then I will know fully, even as I am fully no. known. No. These people aren't known as friends of God. And these people that Jesus just described are doing it all in the name of Jesus. They're claiming to be ministers and represent, representatives of Jesus. So the truth that we have to have for salvation has to go beyond a list of doctrinal beliefs. And the lesson in Satan's final deception, I'm I'm setting this up for the lesson, because the lesson, Satan's final deceptions, are two factual doctrines that you have to know. In order not to be deceived, you need to know two doctrines. You need to know the doctrine of the state of the dead, and you need the doctrine of the Sabbath. That will protect you from end-time deception. And I'm going to suggest to you, with the very minimalistic uh, 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 protection, that will probably not protect you from being deceived. Yeah, yes, certainly we don't want to believe lies about those facts. But let me give you some examples. Can a person know the truth about both these doctrines and still not know God? Yes. Yeah. Do you think the devil knows the truth on both those doctrines? Yes. Yeah. Pharisees did. Pharisees did. Will a person be saved by knowing true doctrines if they know the false God? Or, let me put it this way, if they don't know God. Then what's the purpose of doctrine? Its primary purpose, understand, primary purpose of all Bible doctrine is to inform you and lead you back to a knowledge of God. You should understand God is like a, think about a bicycle wheel, Central hub, spokes going out from the bicycle wheel. God is the source of all truth, yes or no. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. Amen. Okay? To the degree you're studying some actual truth and you follow the truth back to its origin, where does it lead you? Back to Christ. Okay? All truth originates from and leads us back to God. And so that's its primary purpose. The problem with religious organizations is they set the truths up as standalone ideas or doctrines, disconnected from the truth about God, more connected to the system of the organization. If you believe these 28 and attest to them, then you can have membership in our club. (laughs) So they're connected to membership more than they're connected to the truth about God. And yeah, they may actually be correct factually, but if you don't cor- connect them to the truth about God, you can believe those 28 through an imperial law construct of God and, believe, and still worship the false God. Mm-hmm. I like what you used as an MRI. That, because I'm a medical person, I think in those terms, and when you use the MRI as the, 
as an example of the Ten Commandments, it made so much sense to me. You go into an MRI, it shows you what's wrong, but it doesn't fix you. That's right. In order to be fixed, you have to go to a physician you trust. He has to give you a remedy that works. You actually have to take the remedy. So what's the consequence of believing the right doctrines set up as standalone doctrines? How I went to school in our Bible classes, we would have classes where you would get your Bible out with your red and blue pens. Remember those? And you would have a long list of proof text on a doctrine. Like, say, State of the Dead, since we're talking about State of the Dead again. And you would start in your Bible, and you'd go through maybe 28 or 30 different Bible verses that you could string together to prove the Adventist version of the State of the Dead. Do you remember that? And if you did that, and you do that for your 28, and that's how you do it. But it was never connected to, to in my, my way of doing it, it was never connected to the truth about God. It was just the truth. This is what God teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. But it was the truth about the state of the dead or man's mortality, but never implications on what it says about God to believe it one way or the other. And if you do it that way, and you form your beliefs that way, what's the danger? What's the outcome to human minds and hearts to form right doctrines, right Sabbaths, right state of the dead, right form of communion, right form of tithing, uh, all based on standalone doctrines? What's the danger? False security. False security, which leads to spiritual narcissism or arrogance. We've got the truth. You guys, you go to church on the wrong day, you get baptized in the wrong way, you take the wrong communion, you believe the wrong thing about the state of the dead, you, the Holy Spirit can't be working with you because he's a spirit of truth and we've got the truth and you don't have the truth. Wow. That's how we grew up. And that's what it leads to, spiritual narcissism, spiritual self-centeredness. This was the Jews in Christ's day. Yeah. We're the chosen. Yeah. We're the chosen. We're the remnant. Yeah, Is that not right? And they killed him. And they killed him. They killed Christ. And how many have we killed of our own membership? who ask questions or, or have, have relegated to a lost cause because they didn't believe the doctrine the way we did. But I don't think the lesson is wrong that the Satan's end times deception will include elements circling around and through spiritualism and, and what Sunday sacredness represents, as we talked earlier. Let's move to Sunday's lesson. The lesson is uh, title for the day is taken from Psalms 14.12 which reads, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Can you think of some doctrine, method, belief, or practice that seems right to almost every single human being on earth and has greater acceptance by, by the human population, but actually leads to death more than the idea of law and order? the belief that right is by the right laws and the right punishment. Can you think of an idea that is more accepted by more people and more people believe you can just get the right laws and the right punishment, you can get the right outcomes? That's called justice. Can you think of an idea that's more accepted than that? By every culture. Now, they may argue about whether this is the right law or not, But once they accept the idea, in their mind, this is a right law, isn't it accepted then the right thing to do is punish people for breaking it? This is is a way that seems right to a man, Mm -hmm. but in the end it leads to death. Mm. This is it. Mm. Consider Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 in light of what I've just said. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. To our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In any justice system, if somebody has done objective wrong and they truly repent from their wrong, is it considered justice to freely pardon them or is a payment of some kind required? The law requires punishment. might be a fine, imprisonment, 
death penalty. Somebody has to pay for there to be justice. This is not God's way. And I noticed in, in lately in, in today's politics, it's a good example, that as long as one group does something really bad to the other group to win, that justifies this group doing something really bad to equal their behavior. So eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You got it. Uh, do most Christians today teach that God freely pardons sinners or God can only pardon because he received a sinless payment of his son's blood. The payment. They contradict scripture. God freely pardons. Thank God. Third paragraph in the lesson reads, people are often told to follow their own conscience in order to determine for themselves what is right or wrong, good or evil, and then live accordingly. But the scripture says that we are all sinners, all corrupted, and so to trust our own sentiment, sentiments is almost guaranteed, guaranteed way to sooner or later get it wrong and even do wrong. A lot of evil has been per- perpetrated through the ages by people utterly convinced of the righteousness of their cause. That is, they followed the way that seems right to them. Any problems with this statement? <clears throat> You're picking up any problems. Any, any part of you going, oh, hey, hold on, wait a minute, hold on. I saw the old two-step going on right there. The old switcheroo. Do you see the old switcheroo going on in this paragraph? Is it your judgment, your understanding, that your conscience and your sentiments are the same thing? No, it's feelings. Have you ever had sentiments about something that your conscience convicted you against? Yes. 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 Okay. They, they did a switch on you, right in the middle. Yeah. Told to follow their conscience, but then they switched it up and said they follow their sentiments. Now, if they would have said people confuse their sentiments with their conscience and think they're following their conscience, with their fo- I would have said, oh, yeah, that happens. Yeah, people definitely follow their sentiments thinking it's their conscience. I'm not getting that. I'm <laughs> having a hard time. You don't, you don't understand the difference between sentiments and conscience? Uh-uh. Okay. Sentiments. Well, tell me right now. <laughs> Things you're sensitive about or have sensitivities about. Your sensitive feelings and... and uh, uh, but your conscience is a faculty that Jesus described, which is sensitive to the movement of the Spirit of God. Your conscience gives a, the Holy Spirit works through your conscience to give a conviction of sin or an enlightenment of new truth or the still small voice of God speaking or a conviction of duty. Have you ever had a conviction of duty put on your heart? You are convicted to act or speak to this person. Mm-hmm. This is all through your conscience. Oh, yeah. Okay? Sentiments are feelings and desires. I feel sentimental about Christmas ornaments on my Christmas tree. I have, I have sentiments about Christmas orders. I do. I'm very sentimental about it. That is not my conscience. Right. Oh. right. So you're just distinguishing the sentiments. The they switched on you. They okay. switched yeah. yeah. on you. wrote it. Now, see, I wouldn't have known that. Paul wrote in Romans 14 regarding religious observances and other things. One man considers one day more sacred than the other, and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on to conclude in Romans 14, 22 to 23, the following. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, if you're doing things out of distrust, faith is trust. Mm -hmm. I don't trust God to do this. I'm trusting myself. That's what's not a faith. I'm not trusting God. That's what it means to not do something of faith. Doing it outside of your trust in God. Doing it on your own. 
Our consciences are the mental faculties that are sensitive. Jesus actually described that in Matthew 6, 22 to 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then if the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He's not talking about physical eyes here. He's talking about your spiritual eye, that part of your mind that is sensitive to the spirit of truth, that enlightens you to truth. Now, you can have, just like you can have a sick, sick eyes and need glasses... Okay, to see clearly, you can have a warped, damaged, seared, hardened conscience that becomes less sensitive until it's fully destroyed and you're completely blind leading the blind that Jesus described. He wasn't talking about physical blindness when he says blind leading the blind. He was talking about people who have seared their consciences with a hot iron to the point that the Holy Spirit has no impact upon them anymore. This is the conscience. God never, though, intended our decision-making, which I call our good judgment, to be directed by conscience alone. He gave another faculty that, as he designed, works jointly with our conscience, the two together. You separate the two, you get real problems. And that other, conscience, that other faculty is our reasoning ability. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. I know a class called Come and Reason. (laughs) If you separate reason from conscience, somebody who reasons actually uses their reasoning ability but have no conscience, they're sociopaths, psychopaths. They can calculate, plot, plan, anticipate, use reasoning abilities to exploit and hurt. You have people who have conscience, they're conscientious, but they won't use their reasoning power. They fly planes into buildings and strap bombs on themselves or drink the Kool-Aid in Jonestown or or burned to death with Waka and Waco with the Branch Davidians. These are conscientious people giving their bodies to the flames. They're not reasonable people. And so reason and conscience together make up your judgment. And you need a healthy reason, ennobled and enlightened by the Spirit, and a healthy, unseared, unwarped, undamaged conscience, which comes through a trust relationship with Jesus Christ. Monday's lesson, Immortality of the Soul, focuses on the immortality of the soul. The basic question is this. When God created human beings in Eden, did God create them in Eden, in sinless perfection, with some aspect of their being that can never die, that is immortal? Uh, or did God create them with, uh, as mortal beings who had eternal life only as they remained in harmony with him? That one. Well, this belief that some part of human individuality, some part of human, human, uh, human being, uh, possesses natural, inherent immortality that God created, you can argue this from a couple different directions. You can do the typical proof text approach. Look at the proof text from Scripture. And then if you look at the proof text, you can start, well, God said, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge and good evil, you will surely die. Satan said, oh, no, you won't. You will not surely die. You can set that up as a tension right from the beginning. There's either death or there's not death. And then they will argue, well, spiritual death or, or a physical death versus spiritual death and so forth. And then there's all these types of confusions that come in. You can read in Genesis chapter 3 where, where the Bible says the following. God speaking to God. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed at the side of Eden of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming, flashing, uh, a sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, if they were already immortal and couldn't die, why is he saying there we have to do this so there won't be an immortal sinner? And why did he put an angel to block the way to the tree of life if they already can't die? You can, you can do proof text approach and reason approach. You can find other texts for God so loved the world that he gave his life, that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him should not die or perish, but have everlasting life. Or the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. So this is a proof text approach. The Bible teaches repeatedly again, the sin results in death. And yet there are other texts people will point to that would seem to say other things. And that's never really, I've never really found much headway with the proof text approach. Uh, The the Bible says it. It's very clear to me. It seems logical and rational. But the bigger approach is what we talked about earlier. What did we talk about earlier with your doctrines? 
going to lead to Jesus. Facts. Are they standalone doctrines? This is proof text. I just did a bunch of proof text to prove it as a standalone doctrine. Or do we take those doctrines and say, okay, there's two possibilities here. One, we have mortality. Human beings that are not reconciled to God will die. Or human beings have some part of them that will never die, regardless of whether they're reconciled or not. Remain in sin, don't remain in sin. They never die. Uh, two possibilities. And then you take both of those possibilities and inquire. If this is true, what does it say about God? And what kind of being is God? If this is true, what does it say about God? And what kind of being is God? Suddenly, it becomes very clear which the truth is. But let's work through that. And let's do that. Remember a couple facts that most Christians, regardless of what they believe about the state of the dead, agree upon. Most Christians agree that in our current state, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born sinners, Psalms 51.5. And most that believe the other view will say we're born in sin and we're born with immortal souls, souls that can't die. That's what they'll say. And they will acknowledge that there are some people in the world that are born into this sin condition that they never actually chose and they have never had the gospel presented to them by any human instrumentality and they live in an abusive and exploitive world and in childhood where they were abused from the earliest moments of their memory until they overdosed and died at 18 of an overdose of some drug or were killed in some violent act, and they never accepted Jesus as their Savior. But despite living only briefly few years of abuse in a condition they didn't choose, God is required to torture them in hell for all eternity. Mm. Now, if that's true, what kind of God is that? Oh, horrible God. Would you do that to your children? No. And suddenly they don't like the question, and they'll try to evade by going, but God's ways aren't my ways. I just take that on faith. So what you're saying is, you recognize that that idea is so offensive, you won't even honestly think about it. You're going to turn your brain off. Now, in this war between Christ and Satan, how much truth is on Satan's side? They'll say none. How much truth is on God's side? All. So who would really want you to stop thinking and examining truth and turn your brain off and believe things that don't make sense? <laughs> and you got, them, you got them again. And you make them uncomfortable. Going further, do you believe God has foreknowledge? Yes. And if God has foreknowledge, you're going to argue this both sides. He does or he doesn't. Because some people believe he doesn't. If God does have foreknowledge, then he foresaw the human sin condition. And he saw that after Adam's sin, all humans would be born in a condition that they did not choose. And billions would live abject, horrible lives and have immortal souls and never have the gospel presented to them and die at some short existence of a few decades and then be tortured for all eternity in hell. He foresaw all that and he created it that way anyway. What kind of being would create such a system? No. Even that's why many, many, many people turn away from that God that's been presented to them. Correct. It's one of the one of the teachings that has resulted in the greatest rejection of the Christian God, this horrible, perverse, false picture of God. But let's say and and so some to get around this teach what they call open theism. God actually doesn't know the future. He didn't know. He doesn't know until it happens, but he does have a great calculator in the sky, and he can calculate all the possible outcomes, but he doesn't actually know the exact outcome until we choose it. Our choice informs him of the outcome. It doesn't take him by surprise in the sense that he could calculate all the possible ones, so he, he goes, yeah, I knew that was one of them they could choose, but he didn't know you would choose it until you choose it. This is open theism. And that's Satan's position. If God does not have foreknowledge and still created them on mortality with the calculated possibility it could go this way and still gave them immortality anyway, then he's either naive or foolish. Oh, man, I didn't really think they'd do that one. That caught me off guard. Woo! <laughs> either way, if we accept the idea he foreknew and did it, he's vindictive, severe, and cruel, and not worthy of our trust. If he, we accept the idea he didn't foresee it and didn't anticipate it, he's naive and foolish and unworthy of our trust. Understand the real issue in this idea of immortality of the soul 
is not the proof text of what it says about it. You have to connect the doctrine back to what it says about God, and that's where we find the real truth on that. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Yes. The way those who present it as standalone doctrines and the end-time final deceptions want you to believe is if you believe the right doctrine about the state of the dead, then if a dead loved one or some person purporting to be a dead prophet appears, you are protected from deception because you know they're sleeping until the resurrection. Isn't that how it's often presented? Yes. You can't be deceived. Mm. Well, hmm. <laughs> well, I certainly agree that it's wise to know the state of the dead, and for all the reasons I said. So let's, let's, let's stand on biblical truth. But I do not agree that if you know those Bible facts, you're protected from being deceived by demons pretending to be angels. Let me give you at least three ways that you can still be deceived while you endorse the Bible fact on mortality of the soul. Here's this. A fallen angel manifests in real physical form that you can touch. Has that ever happened in Scripture? An angel presents in real physical form as a human. Yes, you can read in Genesis where they came to talk to Abraham and they ate with him, remember? In real physical form. The fallen angel claims to be one of the Old Testament prophets, perhaps Isaiah, who has a special end-time message for us. He's not a disembodied floating spirit. You can physically touch him. He eats dinner with you. And he tells you something. But you say, I object. I understand the Bible speaks about the state of the dead. The dead are sleeping until the resurrection. You can only be a demon impersonating Isaiah. And the kind, gentle Isaiah says, well done, you know your Bible. That's exactly what God wants you to do to know your Bible. I was sleeping in death in the grave until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I was one of the first fruits raised by Jesus. You read about an ax that went around with the 500 that people saw. And I was taken to heaven with Jesus at that time. And you can read, I'm one of the 24 elders sitting on the throne in Revelation. And he has sent me back today to give you this special warning. Wow. Now, does your belief about the state of the dead protect you from that deception? No. That's one. Two. You see some being claiming to be a deceased loved one. They have the same mannerisms, turn to the head, laugh, smile. They know previous interactions that you've had with them that only you and they had. But knowing your Bible, you say, the dead sleep in the grave and cannot know anything until they are resurrected. You cannot be my departed loved one. You're a demon. Be gone. But they smile and gently say, sweetheart, you're right that the dead sleep in the grave. And I'm not speaking to you from the grave. Jesus is the Jesus that controls all nature, including time. I'm actually in my body back in 1976, and he has opened a window in time. And do you remember that day when we were on the beach and you saw me staring off out into heaven and, and you couldn't get my attention for about three minutes? That was Jesus asking me to give you a message that he told me to keep secret from you until today when I'm giving you this message. But I'm not disembodied. I'm back there in my body. Does your belief about the state of dead protect you from Jesus moping a window in time? Mm-hmm. Or this one. You see a non-corporeal, non, non-corporeal, non-physical, no body, oh. non-physical entity speaking and claiming to be Jeremiah or another prophet or an, a loved one. Sent, but we'll say Jeremiah. Sent from God with an end-time message. You object because you know the Bible teaching about the state of sleep and death, that this cannot be Jeremiah because he's sleeping in the grave waiting, waiting for the resurrection, and he's disembodied. He's not here physically. It must be a demon. But the Jeremiah smiles gently and says, well done. You know your Bible. Well done. This is exactly what God would want you to do, to understand and know your Bible. And the truth of what the Bible says about mortality, I was dead and I was sleeping in the grave, but I also was one of the resurrected when Jesus came out of the grave. And I've been in heaven all this time. And I am not speaking to you um, on earth. I'm speaking to you from heaven through a quantum projection. (laughs) 
And I'm in my physical body in heaven. And it's very similar to what you might see on FaceTime or a, or a holographic projection. Um, I'm not disembodied at all. I am, I am, uh, I'm, I'm talking to you from heaven, and, uh, and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, aren't you? And, and uh, I'm using these same quantum linkages that Ellen White spoke about in her book Evangelism on page 93 when she wrote the following. The striking feature of divine operations is the accomplishment of the great works that can be done to our world by very simple means. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part. The whole is a wheel within the wheel, uh, working in entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. I'm speaking to you through these vibration cords, just like radio waves um, right now, sending you a message from heaven that Jesus has asked me to send to you. Does your belief in the state of the dead protect you from that deception? No. no. Have I upset you today? No. (laughs) So there's an important reason I'm doing this, folks. Our system tells us you're safe if you know the right doctrines. If you just know what the Bible teaches about the state of the dead, you can't be deceived by demons pretending to be people back from the dead. I've just given you three ways that demons could pretend to be people from the dead while endorsing what the Bible says about the state of the dead. We are not going to be protected by having the right doctrines. We are going to be protected by knowing God for ourselves, knowing his methods, his character. And this is why Paul says, even if an angel of light comes with another gospel, if you don't know... The truth of God's kingdom, his character, his methods, how it works, the principles. If you don't know those and you believe based on the authority of who's speaking and they just convince you they're an angel from heaven or a prophet sent back who was resurrected with Jesus and one of the 24 elders, then you believe because of the weight of office. The pastor said, the pope said, the prophet Jeremiah from heaven said... But even if they say, and it's not the truth, as you understand it in Jesus, you reject it. Remember he said in Deuteronomy, even if they come with a miracle, and the miracle comes true, but they teach falsehood, don't believe them. In other words, you have to know the truth for yourself. Not the truth of a doctrine, the truth of God's character, methods, design law, principles, how reality actually works. And then you're settled both intellectually and spiritually, you can't be moved. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator God who builds reality and you have provided us the truths. Now we ask for your spirit to help sink these truths into both our minds to understand and our hearts to live out that we can be settled and will never be shaken even when the grandest deceptions are are dumped upon the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.